This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast from Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. On the deck for this week, a three-way tussle for big oil and Malaysia's efforts at reforms. First, we're going to turn to Occidental Petroleum's $38 billion lurch for oil rival Anadarko and the links Chief Executive Vicky Holub is going to in order to seal this deal and keep it out of the hands of Chevron. In fact, since we recorded this, Chevron has dropped out of the bid. So joining me in the studio is U.S. Editor John Foley. Hello, John. Hello, Jen. Okay, um, I just have to admit this actual deal kind of puts me to sleep in terms of like oil company buying another oil company and then a third oil company coming in. But Wait, aren't you from Texas? I am from Texas. But but what has caught my attention about this is the cast of characters involved in this whole tussle, um, including the chief executive of uh, Occidentals, who seems like. I, I've never seen a woman CEO in an in oil, oil company sector. before. Yeah, in the oil sector. You're totally right. But <laughs> yeah. this is a particularly interesting one because, yeah, let's start with Vicky Hollow, who yeah. runs Occidental Petroleum. It's a shale driller in Texas, but it's one of the only companies I can think of in the space with a woman in charge. And oil and gas is really poor. It's one it of the worst to, industries, It's right? like under a quarter of employees in the oil and gas sector globally are women and the number of CEOs is basically zero. When I, I was looking across some of the other big oil, US oil companies this morning, and when you look at their top executives, some of them have literally no women uh, named as their top executives. Others like uh, Conoco, Chevron itself, you'll see a couple of women in those kind of you know velvet ghetto jobs yeah. like uh, HR. And right. So Vicky Holub is really, she's one of a kind, and she is super aggressive when it comes to buying the things she wants, basically. So she's going all out to win this rival company, Anadarko. Okay, so Anna, so she puts out a bid for Anadarko, right? And then there was, I guess, so what happened? Did, did somebody come in? Did Chevron come in and, and try and, and take this company away? She started trying to buy Anadarko uh, really a couple of years ago. She's okay. been saying to them, hey, wouldn't this be good? Let's do a deal. Got She'd it. even put a, a, an amount, a share price, $76 a share on the table. And they just, for whatever reason, said no. And then when Chevron came along, which is you know multiple times bigger right. than Occidental, they were like, great, let's do it. So she, she persisted. She's not only come back with her bid, um, made it form, you know, made it formal, taken it public, said to shareholders, "Listen, this is what I'm going to give you, and it's better." But she even got Warren Buffett, who yeah. is obviously everyone knows Warren Buffett, to supply ten billion dollars of basically unconditional financing, and she did that by getting Chief Executive Brian Moynihan, who runs Bank of America, which is America's biggest deposit-taking bank, to call Warren Buffett and be like hey, you really should think about putting money into this deal. So the ability of this woman to corral some of the most powerful people in American finance to help her get what she wants is quite amazing. It is. And and so let's talk about the Warren Buffett angle here because he's getting preferred shares, a crazy interest rate for it and dividends. Is that how that's working for this loan, so to speak? Um, so she's basically buying his good name. Is that correct? As opposed to going out and getting just a regular loan at a cheaper totally. interest rate. So the, the 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 deal she's given Buffett, where he gets this kind of these, they like shares, but they pay a higher dividend than all the other normal shares. Um, it's classic Warren Buffett in the sense that he will lend his name at a high price. Okay. So she's getting the Buffett seal of approval, if you like, and Buffett 
remember, can fill a stadium with 40,000 investors once a year, as he did this weekend at his general meeting. So she gets that name. But also what she gets, which Bank of America can't supply, is that unconditionality. Buffett spent loads of time over the weekend at his general meeting boasting about how when he says he'll put $10 billion in, he really will. It doesn't matter what happens to the market. There are no material adverse change clauses like banks right. would try and wire in. So while it's more expensive than regular equity and kind of more expensive than debt, his thing is, I'm good for the money. When I say I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you. And that's great for Vicky Hollow because she can then go back to Anadarko and say, not only have I got this amazing deal for you, but you can guarantee that I'll have this big chunk of money from Warren Buffett. Okay, so he still has this halo effect, right? Buffett. Yeah. He really does. So like, I mean, taking a detour, moving from Texas to Nebraska, yeah. he, you know, Buffett had his annual meeting this weekend when he says that he likes a company a lot of people take him at his word. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting at the moment because he made a bit of a slip-up. He's, he's made a couple of slip-ups, yeah. you know, and that, that's kind of um, interesting that people are still like, oh, whatever you say, we will follow Well, so like he, he invested in Kraft Heinz and that didn't work out so well for everyone else. He did okay because he bought in through, right. you know, strange securities and preferred shares and that kind of stuff. But, um, but his taste in companies isn't quite what it was. And actually, the, the whole notion of him supporting this deal for Anadarko to me, it's kind of interesting because, you know, this is a maybe a good company and Vicky Hollard may be a good boss, but this is a company that's going to help dirty up the atmosphere just that little bit more. Shale oil is a big polluter. Yeah. Lots of carbon, lots of methane. Does he care about that, though? Well, he, I mean, he may do personally, but he makes a big deal out of saying that his job is not to impose his personal views and politics on Berkshire Hathaway, which is obviously the company that he yeah. runs. Now, I kind of am sympathetic to that a bit because we get a bit tired of all the kind of what people call greenwashing. Well, or the reverse where they oh, like, God, yeah. you know, talk a big game and then do nothing. Well, look at, J you know, JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, puts out a 50-page letter with his annual report saying, here's what's wrong with America, here's how to fix it. Yeah. Buffett does not do that. And that's quite refreshing. Yeah. At the same time, though, the guy's role model, he, you know, he's an icon. It would be great to see him saying, I'm not going to put more money into one of the dirtiest uh, industries yeah. in the world. I'm yeah. going to think of like my investor's grandchildren. He's kind of not doing that. Okay, John, let's turn back to Texas. The other thing that Vicki Holub did, and maybe you can explain this a little better, but she did an end run around investors. So this is really interesting because when, when she first signed up the money from Buffett, we actually said, we wrote a column that day and we were like, great, I guess you've got Buffett on board, but wouldn't it be crafty if she used this extra money from Buffett to raise less equity from shareholders and therefore get rid of the need to put the deal to a vote. Okay. So in short, the less equity you raise, the less likely you are to have to ask shareholders for permission. At, at the time, you know, there was some mood music around the company saying, of course, what? of course we wouldn't do that. That would be terrible. Here they are, though, now scrapping the shareholder vote. Now, this is quite clever for her because she can go to Anadarko again and say, another thing that makes this deal definite is that we don't have to ask our shareholders. But if you're a shareholder in, in Occidental you're now pretty peeved because you don't get a say on what happens. And on Friday, Occidental has its own annual meeting. And some of the shareholders of that company have already said and told us that they're going to vote against renominating the directors as a company. Huh. As a protest for well, you know, yeah. lurching into this deal. So is it just, could some of those directors actually lose their seats? Oh, I, or is I it just it. like a... 
I mean, we've discussed... Stay on pay kind of like, I we're look, angry. Exactly. Like we've yeah. discussed here before the way in which shareholders tend to be a bit supine. They tend to do what they're told. Yeah. It's very difficult to get a protest vote. You know, GE, for example, which has like been a disaster for shareholders, is having its general meeting today. And we're not seeing any sign that, you know, anyone's head's going to roll. Boeing is another great Boeing example. Is, yeah, companies yeah. have to do some really bad stuff to get their directors kicked out by shareholders. So... It's almost certain that those Occidental directors will get back in comfortably, but it's still good. They're going to be a bit hot under the collar if they've got big institutions like T. Rowe Price turning up and saying, we're really angry. You deprived us of the right to say whether we like this deal and you're going to have to convince us to stick around. Okay, well, I like her moxie, even though it is, <laughs> it is like kind of, you know, I could see why a shareholder would not like that. Yeah. But come on, it's a good story. It certainly is. All right, well, I know we'll keep following it. Thanks for coming in, John. Thanks for having me. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I am speaking long distance with Clara Ferrara Marquez, our Singapore columnist. Um, he's been covering Southeast Asia in particular, a little country called Malaysia. Um, which has grabbed a lot of headlines in the past couple of years over the 1MDB financial fraud scandal, pulled in big names like Goldman Sachs. Um, and then politically, uh, the country one year ago went through this huge political eruption that saw a change of government for the first time since the, since the country declared independence with Mahathir Mohammed stepping into power. Um, since then, things have not gone quite according to script, have they, Clara? What's going on? Well, I'm just back from Kuala Lumpur. I spent a couple of days in really to try and take the temperature. You know, how are things in Malaysia uh, a year on from this, you know, absolute uh, earthquake election? So the Barisan Nasional had run Malaysia for decades, six decades, really since independence. And it's the first time that an opposition coalition has taken power. Ironically, of course, they, they're, they're led by Mahathir Mohamed, who was a former uh, Barisan prime minister himself, but now very much uh, reinventing himself as, as a reformer, at least on, on paper. Um, and it's been a very challenging year for them. They still, you know, it, there's a lot of institutional capacity building that needs to happen, uh, a lot of reform to very painful things like the civil service. And it's been slow going, honestly. And a lot of uh, landmark changes that people expected to see have been much slower coming than, than, than um, optimists had perhaps expected. And that's always the way with these dramatic landslides. And also, if you look back at the scale of the win, you know, perhaps it wasn't quite as dramatic as all that uh, in numbers terms, which means that the reversal, um, you know, support leaking back um, to the pro-Malay, Barisan uh, national nationalist um, sentiment, that, that's, that's happening at, at, at quite a rate. And you can see that in, in recent by-elections. So to what extent is the 1MDB scandal still an issue that this government can use or work on? I mean, I still see news about, like, say, the U.S. is selling off uh, a mansion in L.A. that that Joe Lowe, uh, who kind of ran the scam, um, had bought, and they're transferring the money back to to Malaysia. Um, There's still this ongoing quest for Joe Lowe himself. I hear rumors that he's hiding out somewhere in China. I mean, is that issue kind of like losing losing its edge in terms of political utility or – Oh, no, absolutely not. That is like the probably the, if not number one, then uh, next to number one, it is, you know, the single biggest issue is widespread corruption. And 1MDP is obviously the, the flashpoint. Uh, Jolo may still be at large, but lots of other people are not. And if you look at the um, Attorney General, what he's doing in his day to day is pretty much 1MDB and 1MDB only. So no, there is the focus continues. And, you know, the, the, the government has numerous efforts uh, in place to try and reform things like procurement, like um, 
the opacity of MPs' earnings and, and how much wealth they have, how much wealth their family has. But it's, it probably hasn't gone on the transparency side quite as fast as some people had hoped. And the trial itself progresses, but obviously these are long and com- complex trials. And Jailer himself, uh, the smoking gun, as it were, is, is still at large. Yeah, well, it seems like you know it was going to be hard to meet high expectations, and certainly the macroeconomic headwinds have not been that cooperative in Asia of late. Um, I mean, one of the big points of focus has been the renegotiation of the recalibration of the relationship with China, which is a big, big partner. Um, you know, but got you know the Chinese government got pulled into the one MDB scandal apparently, um, and Mahathir and his his. His party have sort of seemed to be pushing back against that. They just renegotiated a big infrastructure deal. How is that playing out going forward? Malaysia has always had a complicated relationship with China. I mean, an extremely close one under Najib, perhaps slightly less so when Mahathir was first prime minister. Um, the reality is both countries need each other. Malaysia is one of the greatest recipients of Belt and Road money. And it really needs China to get the economy moving faster. You know, Malaysia's big selling point is that it can be for Chinese companies wanting to expand into Southeast Asia, it can be a friend, friendly harbour, a place that you launch your, your your companies from, you hold the logistics hubs uh, and, and so forth in a neighbourhood that perhaps is not always pro-Chinese. I mean, consider Vietnam, for example. Um, the Belt and Road projects in Malaysia were undoubtedly, you know, they had overpaid and that there's little question of that. The, the question then is, okay, well, you've renegotiated this major project, the East Coast Rail Link, which connects the West and Eastern Coast of Malaysia. Did you need it at this price and did you need it at any price? And the cost-benefit analysis has never really been made public. So the, there's still some feeling that perhaps, you know, even at a cheaper price, it's still it's still too much. But the fact is they need each other too much. Both sides just cannot survive without the other. Oh, fascinating. All right. Well, thanks for talking with me, Clara. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, John Foley, Pete Sweeney, and Clara Fiera Marquez. Hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. <laughs>